welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Geraldine Datz, a licensed clinical health psychologist specializing in the treatment of pain and the president and clinical director of Southern Behavioral Medicine Associates. Welcome. Good morning. Hi, Geraldine. Welcome to the show. Um, Geraldine is a pain psychologist. She owned, She started and founded her own pain center. She, I'm pretty busy, but I think she's at least 50% busier than I am. I don't know how she gets everything done. So she's a good friend and a colleague, and she, we've worked together multiple projects. We've presented together. So I'm excited to have her on the show. And I'm also interested myself in listening to her approach, which has been quite effective. And she is a professor who really likes treating chronic pain. So welcome, Geraldine. Good morning. I love treating chronic pain. Um, and I'm happy to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about where you're at and the type of practice that you have right now? Sure. So um, I am a pain psychologist. That's something that maybe not everyone is familiar with. Basically, my background is as a licensed clinical health psychologist. And health psychologists kind of treat every major disease. And I specialized in chronic pain. And I've been writing and educating and treating folks about non-drug treatments for chronic pain for about 15 years. Um, uh, as you mentioned, I started my own practice, uh, which is located in Mississippi, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, but I'm licensed in several states. I'm licensed in Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and we do telehealth really across the United States. So we serve clients from all sorts of locations. And um, our clinic is a multidisciplinary group of providers. Um, I'm a psychologist, there are other psychologists, but there are also medical social workers, um, licensed professional counselors. We have um, a specialized chronic pain program and that has a physical therapist and a nutritionist and a yoga therapist. So we really, for the pain treatment, we really pull in all disciplines, but our clinic in general treats mental health and everything. Cause you could have pain and anything else, including um, a severe disorder like schizophrenia or something like trauma or depression. Right. Could you give us a little background about how your approach to chronic pain evolved? Sure. Uh, I was trained pretty classically in cognitive behavioral therapy. I went to graduate school at uh, Stony Brook University, uh, SUNY Stony Brook in Long Island, and was trained by many of the founders really of CBT. So that's kind of where I started and that still heavily influences my uh, approach. But, you know, as you do clinical work or as I've done clinical work, it's really, I think it's important to tailor approaches to patients and CBT does allow a lot of tailoring. That's the whole point. And I think that's really misinterpreted. It's pulling in the psychological, the social, the spiritual, the cultural variables and tying that in for your client and really starting to identify thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. I would say that over time I've become much more functional, um, which I wasn't taught originally in terms of using PT and movement 
and yoga and really connecting the mind and the body. Could you define cognitive behavioral therapy for the audience? Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a um, empirically validated treatment, which basically means it has evidence behind it and it works. Not all forms of quote unquote therapy or talk therapy uh, can claim that. And CBT is the process of modifying thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And each one of those can lead to the other. You can have a thought that leads to a behavior. You could have a behavior that leads to a thought. And the underlying um, thought process is that we have negative assumptions. We tend to make thinking errors. We tend to um, overestimate or underestimate risk. And these thinking processes lead to neural pathways, which in turn become ingrained and then become just generally part of our behavior. And we assume that this is us, you know, that this is natural. And the process of CBT actually allows the therapist and the client to work together to uproot and analyze and really uh, kind of objectively evaluate these different types of behaviors and thoughts that integrate and disentangle them, if you will, and um, kind of lead to recovery or, or freedom in a way. Let me ask you a question based on my experience. You know, I went to psychotherapy for, psychotherapy for many years with my own chronic pain experience. It got progressively worse. And I don't, I don't want to be negative in psychotherapy because it certainly has some value, no question about it. But there's an impression that if you just know your past well enough, it's going to solve the problem. Whereas cognitive behavioral therapy, which actually pulled me out of the hole in, from a deep tailspin, really reroutes your thoughts and from my perspective creates neuroplastic changes in the brain. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Actually, cognitive behavioral therapy has the most neuroscience behind it. And that started well before this pain work. Um, work in the areas of OCD, depression, uh, anxiety, panic attacks. There's a huge literature which looks at uh, neural correlates of how CBT actually changes brain pathways as measured by fMRI. And I've argued in the past doing education that CBT is really the only brain-based intervention that we have. Um, it's that powerful. And I, the, you know, when, and I know this is an area that that you've studied on extensively, you know, the, infor the information that we process in the brain, about 40 million bits per second, we're constantly appraising things, right. appraising them as, you know, negative or positive. And this will lead to these instantaneous um, thoughts, which lead to, you know, pathways that are laid. And that is when we bring in pain and we think about threats and, and the meanings of pain, that happens so quickly. And so, yes, it, it absolutely affects brain functioning and our responses often in ways we don't realize. Yeah, I mean, I think we both agree that in chronic pain, you're under threat, which creates a very total body reaction of inflammation, metabolic changes, um, all sorts of things happen in the body when you're in a constant threat. And of course, negative thoughts are a constant threat. And the idea of neuroplasticity is awareness, separation, redirecting, and cognitive behavioral therapy creates an awareness and then a separation and then a redirection, whereas psychotherapy just goes awareness, 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 but doesn't really redirect very well. And I 
do agree with you. I mean, I, I've not done nearly the data research you have, but I, I do think that cognitive behavioral therapy is the only one that shows that the, that actually reroutes the brain, correct? Yes. Um, the, in terms of changes in the amygdala, the ACC, you know, somatosensory cortex, depending on the disorder we're looking at. I, there was actually a study that came out last year, which I found really interesting, which showed, um, just speaking about depression, that we know that, you know, about 45% of people um, find benefit from CBT with, uh, that have depression. And these researchers set out to try to find out if there was like a neural signature that you could find which could help you predict in advance who those 45% of people were. And uh, this was done at uh, University of Glasgow. And they you know, stumbled upon uh, a couple of findings you know, that, that looked at um, MRI signatures that we could actually find. And so we could start matching therapies early on. Like you said, so many people struggle to find the right therapies. And CBT isn't right for everyone. No one treatment is right for everyone. But it appears that um, certain people may be more sensitive to the effects of this approach. Um, and I want to circle back to something else you said about psychotherapy. You know, a lot of psychotherapy uh, is about revisiting the past. And CBT is really about understanding the past, but it's about influencing the present and changing the present. And it's active. It's not passive. And it's, you know, not as reflective as other types of therapy. It's really work. There's homework and uh, thought logs and often heated discussions <laughs> about uh, where these assumptions come from and what these thoughts are and naming them and, and categorizing them is extremely powerful and, and difficult. It's very difficult work. Now, you say you've um, now added some more functional things into your treatment program in addition to the CBT. Could you give us an overview to your approach now that you think is, the, well, obviously it's very individual, but you've been effective. Can you get a feel for what makes your approach effective? I mean, what is your approach in general, and why do you think it's so effective? Well, as a psychologist, we start out with mental health. And so from where I sit, I find that to be extremely ignored. Um, we start out with a very comprehensive assessment that is psychological, medical, and physical therapy. So those three people will assess a patient, and then we meet and discuss our impressions. From my standpoint, I use psychological testing. There's testing that's been normed with, psych with chronic pain patients, and it could help me see, even when compared to another pain patient, whether this person has extreme depression or extreme trauma or extreme what we call interventional fragility, meaning uh, if you cut on this patient, if you operate on this patient, if you give this patient an injection, there's a very high level of likelihood this person will have a negative response. And that's based on norms of chronic pain patients, basically other patients who were categorized and classified and used as the, the basis of this test. So I, I think that's an edge that not many practices use. And I would say that the patients feel very known. We do a very thorough job of getting to know them. I mean, we also treat them with dignity and respect. We listen, 
we allow them to tell their pain story. You know, we have very well-trained people in the clinic that have been, you know, working with pain patients for a long time. I think collectively we've got over like 55 years of experience or something. Right. Like so I think that matters. Well, I think I agree. I mean, I've said this for a long time and I've been through many phases of this myself, but I still think the essence of treating chronic pain is the doctor patient relationship because it has to be interactive. You have to understand each other. Then the patient really has to feel safe. And in this day and age, especially in surgeon's office, we're seeing making major surgical decisions in 15 to 30 minutes on the first visit, you don't feel safe. And guess what? You actually aren't that safe. So you're describing something completely different than my surgical practice or the surgical practices in general, is that I had a habit of not seeing people ever making a decision on the first visit. It was always over three to six months. So even I couldn't spend time on one visit with them over six months, I could, could, could get to know them. And so you say you spend quite a bit of time right up front talking to patients? Absolutely. Each patient gets, you know, an hour interview at least with me and then a follow-up session. And, you know, we're, we're talking about system-based challenges to um, David, which are really challenging. You know, I'm allowed, I can be reimbursed for that 45 minutes for an hour. And, you know, so many providers are not because that's right. a function of my discipline. So that's, I think that's a, a little bit of a luxury. And that's also a, a thing that I think we need to be thinking about in healthcare. Can we pull in disciplines that have the time to do these assessments? Because, you know, it's probably not reasonable to have a, you know, a typical orthopod during the course of their day, spend an hour, you know, assessing a patient, but can this be done in a team approach? So um, yes, time is, time is a huge piece. And also over time, just like you, I've honed a lot of questions that are, you know, not just what is your pain on the scale of one to 10 and how much does it interfere with your life? And like we cover all of that in paperwork, but I really try to get at, you know, people's fears and thoughts and I screen them for other psychological disorders, which I know can make the pain worse, like depression anxiety is so common, pain-related anxiety, panic attacks, just an overactivation of the central nervous system, trauma, and ACE, ACE factors, you know, adverse childhood experiences that get wired in. Right. Well, I just want to clarify something really, because um, I know we're on the same page on this one, but the bottom line is, when you say psychological, see what happens in medicine, we can't find anything surgically to operate on. So there's a term out called medically unexplained symptoms, which really upsets me because it is explained. The brain activity on scans is on fire. The body chemistry is way off. The inflammatory markers are way up. So everything's wrong. There's no such thing as medically unexplained symptoms they are completely explained. So I just want to clarify the concept of quote psychological. People say all the pains in your head or is imaginary pain because it's quote psychological. And I know you and I think the same way. That's really just a total body response to a threat. Exactly. Um, I, I have the same aversion to the um, medically unexplained symptoms. And in a way, that statement is kind of ironic because it is medically unexplained, but it's so arrogant to consider that just because it's medically unexplained, it's unexplained in all realms. Right. So in a sense, that's actually an accurate term. It is medically unexplained, but medicine is not everything. You know, 
traditional um, medicine. So yeah, it, it's a it's a mental it's a whole body piece. It's a mental health piece. Um, I, I think this garbage category of mups and you know for a time it was fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue or you know these other kind of broad based diagnoses. And I, I think it's a way of marginalizing patients. Um, I see a lot of females get marginalized that way. Uh, and there's been a lot written about that within the medical system. You know, females are less likely to be believed and less likely to be accurately diagnosed. And there are probably, you know, a host of reasons for that. But in general, um, you know, I, you and I have talked a little bit about the placebo effect. And I guess this is sort of a cousin to that idea. The idea that you know, when people get better, when you suggest something to them, well, that's just nonsense, or, or that's just, you know, somebody being kind of weak and suggestible. And the most recent data on the placebo effect, just by example, is that it is an incredibly powerful healing response. It's actually the most powerful healing response that we have. Billions of dollars are spent in the pharmacal pharmaceutical industry just to overcome the placebo response. That is right. the standard. And so the idea, you know, that you have, it's, it's really insane to, that we're discounting the entire body or the body's ability to heal when that is actually what we should be studying and enhancing and appreciating. Well, for example, we do know with exceptional cancer survivors <clears throat> that, you know, we have people with stage four cancers almost dead come completely cured, completely cured. Well, guess what? It's the immune system rose up and actually killed the cancer. It wasn't chemotherapy. Uh -huh. And so that's, quote, a placebo response because you connected to the body's capacity to heal. So I agree with you. Placebo is absolutely the most powerful tool that we have in the body. And what's unfortunate for patients is doctors are taught, well, if it's placebo, then exactly the patient's weak or they're imagining it or is a sign of malingering. And it's absolutely the thing we want to recruit every patient every time is this quote placebo effect. I actually would like to find a different name for it because I think the placebo has got a bad name to it. Yes. But yeah. So I just want to go back for a second on the medical and explain symptoms. So I, I want to clarify from my perspective, um, the body's physiology, I mean, your medical school, we're taught the body's physiology about inflammatory markers and adrenaline, cortisol, and the different stress chemicals. So I think they are completely medically explained. And so they're not explained by a structural problem. In other words, it is, it's not a bone spur or something causing the problem, but the physiology in the body is way more powerful than a given structural abnormality. And so that's what's perplexing to me about this medical thing right now is that we spend a ton of time in medical school on the body's physiology. And then also we ignore it from that point on and look at just its structure. And structure is maybe 5% of the variables, but it's really the body's response to the environment. And so that's what's got, really got me very perplexed right now. That's why I think we've gone so far off base with chronic pain in general, is that we don't acknowledge the body reactions to the environment under threat. And as you know, people are under a lot of stress these days. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing, again, you, I know you know this, but I'll just remind the audience that we're actually taught as physicians, okay, quote, we can't fix it with a test or procedure. It must be psychological. And then some people off to the psychologist. Well, you cover the basis with your clinic, but I think that chronic pain is actually a primary care issue addressed by sleep, physical therapy, stress medications, et cetera. I mean, it's a multi-pronged process with psychology being an important part of it. 
But a given psychologist who's doing only psychology is not going to solve this problem. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. You know, and as you're talking, the piece that psychology brings, and, and there's a long history of the, the separation of, you know, psychology from medicine, but the piece that it brings that we're both touching on through the placebo effect and through thoughts, feelings, and behaviors is really about expectations. You know, what are our, our expectations and how does that shape outcomes? And that has actually been researched in the medical literature. Um, this is reminding me of a study of, um, it was called the Sci-Heart Trial, and it was over 100 patients that were scheduled for cabbage surgery. I don't know if you heard about it. No. But basically, they had, you know, just briefly three groups, and they gave a brief psych intervention. It was basically 50 minutes uh, in-person sessions and two booster phone calls where they had them, the patients who were undergoing the cabbage, think about their outcomes design a goal list of what they were going to do after the surgery. One woman wanted to garden and they had her visualize garden and another person wanted to, you know, get back to walking and jogging and they had them visualize that. So there was a lot of visualization, goal setting, tailoring to the person. There was another person who wanted to chop wood, attend a party. And then they had two other groups where they just like gave them emotional support. And then one group was standard medical care. And the people in the brief psych tailored intervention showed the largest improvements in um, fitness for work, the largest improvement in disability responses. They had greater quality of life. And most of all, they had lessened pro-inflammatory cytokine responses. So here's wow. a perfect example of how like the Sci-Heart trial links some straightforward surgical interventions that is just a standalone treatment that we have always used and then just a little tinkering 50 minutes of visualization and training and then two booster phone calls actually produced a change within the body's cellular system and in turn produced changes in actual measurable outcomes in terms of um, quality of life, mental fitness, and all these other things. So I feel like, you know, I just use that as an example because I feel like that just summarizes exactly what we're talking about. Right. No, I think that's dead on. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you very much. We're going to do another podcast here in a few minutes. And I'd like to talk in the next podcast, I'd like to talk about the actual tools you use to give people to actually to go forward in life in general. But this is really excellent. And so I think we summarize the body's response to threat, the placebo effect, change in restructuring thinking, which actually physically changes the brain. And uh, it's just delightful to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure also. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Gerilyn Datz, for being on the show today and sharing her insights into the treatment of chronic pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to return next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.